Hey everyone, welcome back to Holistic Health Masterclass Podcast. This is your host, Brett Hawes, and this is our first episode for 2019. Hope you had a great holiday season. Hope that the new year is off to a rocking start and uh, wishing you all the best for 2019. Uh, so today's episode, um, I did a couple of Facebook posts and blog posts, um, which got a lot of traffic, a lot of attention, um, basically talking about um, glyphosate. I mean, you've heard me talk about glyphosate over and over again. Um, but this idea of cross-contamination and overt fraud in the... Uh, food sector. Now, when I say food sector, we're really talking about organics versus uh, their conventional counterparts. So um, today's show really revolves a lot around that. But my guest today is Henry Rowlands from the Detox Project. And Henry and I have become quite good friends over the last few years. Um, We've done some work together. Uh, his organization, I feel, is really doing some really next level work, uh, working with governments, working with tech startups, uh, and of course with companies and, and whatnot. But let me just sort of really give you the thousand foot overview of what you can expect on today's show. We essentially revolve around Detox Project's three core mandates. And those mandates include uh, obviously farming and sort of pushing for chemical-free, non-GMO farming. Uh, they are working at a very high level with that, uh, working with, again, startup companies as well as governments. Um, their second mandate is to regulate the detox uh, market. So basically, if you have a product um, that claims to detoxify, at this point, Roundup and pesticides from your body, um, you need to, you know, you can get certified by them or verified to prove that your product actually does that. And that's exactly what I did with Biomedic um, from Purium. So you can, I've put a link in the show notes uh, where you can go back to that podcast and you can also check out under the product section in the website. You can actually get onto that and uh, have a look at Biomedic. Now, the third mandate is to actually uh, try and sort of keep tabs, if you will, on what's going on with the food supply. And they have now launched, this is Detox Project, has actually launched um, and unveiled a series of tests. Uh, there, Let me sort of um, be clear here. So Detox Project has actually launched um, sort of two branches of this mandate, if you will. One is consumer-focused, where you can now test your food and water for glyphosate residues. Um, glyphosate, for those of you who don't know, is actually Roundup. Okay, again, go back onto the site, check out some of the blog posts I've done. And then the other branch of this is really um, getting manufacturers, getting food companies uh, and and uh, foods to level up and get their products certified. So um, there are a bunch of companies now, supplement companies, food companies that have their products certified by Detox Project to be glyphosate residue free. In other words, they do not contain any traces of uh, Roundup. Now, why is this important? Important. Well, as you will see and hear on today's um, podcast, uh, you will 
see that there are in fact organic non-GMO foods that are getting contaminated with Roundup. Why is this happening? Well, there's a few reasons why. One is desiccation. All right, so this uh, drying of product in the farmer's field versus in the warehouse. Again, listen to the show. Uh, the other reason for this is overt fraud. Um, you know, there was a guy, again, check out the blog post that I did. Uh, there was a guy who got nailed for $140 million in fraud where he was selling organic chips uh, that weren't actually organic at all. Now, this is happening in the food supply, and as we discuss on today's show, uh, there is really a lack of accountability and of supply chain management in the food supply. And so the thing that frustrates me, the thing that angers me, is that we're all buying organic food with the best intentions, and unfortunately, because of fraud, cross-contamination, desiccation, and so on, um, some of these food items are actually not as clean as we would like them to be and could be caused a lot of health problems for people. So check out the show notes today. There really is a lot of links in there. I would encourage you to go and check out Henry's um, websites. Follow these guys on Facebook. They're doing a fantastic job and are really a wealth of information when it comes to this. So uh, you will see in the show notes as well, you can actually uh, get linked to those tests if you want to test yourself. Uh, you can test your body for glyphosate, for pesticides. You can test your food as well. And that way, um, and of course, then there's also Biomedic, which has uh, been proven to help with uh, glyphosate at least. Uh, so anyway, check out the show notes, click on those. And as always, if you do enjoy the show, please consider subscribing, reviewing. And I think this is a really, really important episode to share with your friends and family. So I'm going to leave it at that. Thanks as always for listening and hope you enjoy today's show uh, with Henry Rowlands and the Detox Project. Hey, Henry, welcome to the show. Uh, good to catch up with you, my friend, and finally get you uh, here so we can chit-chat about some things. So thanks for coming on. Oh, it's fantastic to be here, Brett. Absolutely fantastic. So, uh, Henry, we'll start off. Um, I like to just start from the beginning. And you actually, uh, I want to get a bit of background on yourself so we can share that with our listeners. And you actually grew up on a farm, is that right, in Wales? Yep. Absolutely, I'm 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 sitting sitting here on the farm at the moment. Nice. Um, so yeah, I've, since I was uh, about eleven, I've been um, involved in different different types of farming. My parents set up a uh, an organic sheep farm um, in Wales back then, and uh, they moved into uh, organic arable farming as well. Um, Switching, switching directions at different times because of the difficulties of farming, but mm-hmm. um, it's it's still to this day really a sheep farm, which is not unusual in Wales. Um, no, <laughs> we've got nine million, nine million sheep and two million people. So uh, <laughs> amazing. Um, so absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, so so growing up on a farm. I mean, we'll get into what you're doing now. We'll talk about detox projects. I can see the sort of progression of how you got to uh, be where you are today. But you're also trained as a journalist. Is that correct, or do you have some kind of background in journalism? Yeah, so I I worked in different uh, news agencies in uh, in different parts of Europe um, for 
mainly concentrating again on agriculture, but also concentrating for small parts of that time on on uh, politics as well, um, and the relationship between agriculture and politics. Um, oh right, okay. So yeah, we've uh, I've covered a lot of issues regarding, for example, uh, the EU relationship um, to GM crops um, and how exactly that. Uh, was different in different EU countries, uh, different influences from outside the EU on on uh, the agricultural process in in Europe, um, including on protein policy and um, things regarding how uh, Europe can be self sufficient in agriculture. So all of all of those things I really covered before getting into the world of. Um, Specifically of pesticides and GMOs, but I was I was always always in the agricultural sector. Let's say, yeah. So inter- and I find that interesting because I mean it's it's obviously quite an interesting journey um, from an outsider's perspective that you know you grow up on a farm and then you get into journalism, but the journalism merges with farming, which is quite interesting. So I don't, I don't know too many people that uh, that's really been the case, but. Fast forward to today, I mean, you now, your sort of uh, base is in Bulgaria. And what is your official position with the detox project, which is kind of what we're going to be talking a lot about today? Sure. So I I am the founder of the detox project. We um, set up in, actually started setting up in 2014, but officially set up in 2015. Um, when we started doing urine testing uh, with the University of California, San Francisco, um, to find out uh, how how um, how high or how low the levels of glyphosate were in in urine of people across America, so that was that was really what um, the detox project was formed around, hmm. uh, and and obviously giving the ability. Uh, as much as possible for the public to test themselves for um, glyphosate. Firstly, at that time, um, just in urine. So, right. uh, it was it was a fascinating first project, and it's uh, as you know, it's built built off into all sorts of other directions since. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. it, it really, really, that first testing, the first testing step, actually enabled us to find out all sorts of interesting information that, that was not public at that time so as a right. as a journalist I, I think the the world of testing for pesticides is is fascinating purely because of the lack of public data out there and and, and being able to get that um out to a, a wide wide audience uh, both in america and elsewhere in the world is is extremely important Mm-hmm. And I mean, so for those of you guys listening out there, um, obviously you would already know, for especially the longtime listeners, uh, I've done quite a number of podcasts that have sort of revolved around GMOs, glyphosate and whatnot. Um, I have spoken to you guys before about um, my sort of relationship uh, with Henry and with Detox Project. But for those people who are not as familiar with the work that Detox Project does, aside from testing glyphosate, I mean, what would you sort of peg as your your key sort of mandates or initiatives as an organization? Sure. I mean, originally, as I said, we were literally set up as a testing organization. So at that time, uh, there was no public testing for pesticides at all. Um, so in other words, if 
a member of the public want, wanted in 2015 to go out there and test their urine for a wide range of pesticides um, or if they wanted to specifically test their food, for example, to see what type of toxic chemicals uh, are in their food, it, it wasn't possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, all, of the laborat- all of the laboratories at that time only worked with the food industry. Um, so they were not interested in testing for the public. So we wanted that to be as transparent as, transparent as possible. So, so testing is certainly one of our main mandates. Um, but since then, we've also moved into two other areas. One is um, for certification. So we started uh, now three different types of certification for food brands and supplement brands and also one related to water, which is just coming out this month. Um, The first certification we set up was glyphosate residue free, uh, which is for food and supplement brands um, internationally to show that there is no no glyphosate herbicide in their products, as as it is a third party certification. Um, The second certification we set up was uh, the gold standard detox certification, um, which shows that a brand um, or a product from a brand is able to detox um, and to remove uh, pesticides and glyphosate from the human body. Uh, and that's, again, a transparency issue because there are a lot of detox claims, but um, mm. really no third-party certification to show that a specific product does exactly what it says regarding removing toxic chemicals from the body. And so we set that up um, last year, and now we're we're also just in the process of finalizing a pesticide-tested certification for bottled water and tap water. So that that will be our third certification. Wow. So basically, just just because I, I mean, we're just catching up here. I haven't spoken to you for a while. So that is literally going to be bottled water companies submitting samples to you for testing, and then you can verify them. Is that right? Exactly, and and also local government authorities as well. Oh wow! Um, So we're gonna we're gonna track um, pesticides in water all over the world um, to enable the the people who are doing a good job the bottled water companies that are doing a good job and also the local authorities that are doing a good job to be able to certify that their water is pesticide-free. And by pesticide-free, I mean tested for the full range of USDA pesticides, which is 413 pesticides. Holy smokes. um, Things things like uh, glyphosate, 2,4-D, and dicamba as well. So. Mm. Um, it, it, it will be a good way of, of uh, finding out who's doing a good job and who's not in the, in the world of water. Right. And I mean, I want to come back to some of these things because they definitely warrant some discussion, but there was a third area cool. that we were going to get into uh, in terms of mandates and we'll circle back around. Cool. I mean, the third thing that we, we do, uh, which we started to realize is one of the most important things is solutions. And that is basically concentrating on agricultural solutions because, for example, when you ban a specific pesticide, the problem has always been that that pesticide is just replaced by another pesticide. Right. Um, And so uh, we've been looking in detail with universities and also with private companies for to find solutions that are scalable and can actually replace the use of chemicals in agriculture 
but not to put the farmers to a disadvantage. So mm. um, it's, it's, it's a process that until recently has been pretty much impossible, but there have been some really good technologies coming along, for example, using electricity rather than chemical herbicides to kill weeds um, and using um, non-toxic foam also to, to, to control weeds as well. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I actually had Andrew from, from Rootwave. Uh, he was on the podcast. So for those of you guys listening out there, go back a few episodes and you'll see, um, I actually called it Electrocides, uh, which, which was, I don't know Absolutely. if I can remember that or where that came from, but uh, that's what it's called. And that's what Henry's referring to here. So, um, Yeah, and, and to me, one of the, one of the most uh, intriguing um, new disruptive technologies out there because the chemical herbicide market, which is a 31 billion dollar market at the moment um, globally has literally no um, let's say scalable and no technology that can be used in all farming systems for controlling weeds um, except for uh, this electricide um, technology which is 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 fabulous and has actually been around uh, you you would have heard from Andrew for a, a long time it's just hasn't been developed commercially until until recently so uh, yeah. fascinating time and I think I think this will uh, hopefully change the agricultural um, landscape over the next few years. Mm-hmm. Well no doubt there's going to be a ton of pushback from that because we're now eating into that 31 billion dollars uh, so uh, um, you know as much as I would love to uh, blue sky everything um, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't like to be naive uh, as to, so as to think it's not going to be Absolutely. easy just to scale this right up and get this in all the farmers fields right but but not, anyway, uh, I don't want to derail. No, it's a huge issue. I mean, one of the problems, obviously, with such technologies is they often get bought up by uh, the, the, the chemical companies and then uh, the technology gets shelved. So we're mm-hmm. only in early stages. I can't get too excited too quickly, but, but uh, uh, at, least, at least they exist um, at the moment. So yeah. uh, we can only hope. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's very exciting. So I want to come back to a couple of things. Um, you know, so you guys launched um, glyphosate testing. And I just, for our listeners, again, for those of you who have been tuning in for a while, you will know exactly what glyphosate is. For those of you who don't know what glyphosate is, I'm going to give you a lightning fast rundown. Glyphosate is the principal ingredient in Roundup. And Roundup is a herbicide that is the most widely used agricultural chemical on the planet. It accounts for around 65% of all agricultural chemicals. And in the last 10 years, this is a very crazy statistic, we have sprayed 75% of all the Roundup ever made in the last 10 years. So we've seen an exponential growth if you will, or an explosion in the use of glyphosate. And I want to put that into context because when we start talking about testing, when we start talking about solutions, um, you know, we're not living in the same world as 10 years ago relative to the topic we're discussing. And that's why I've got Henry on and that's why we're talking about solutions because um, I just want to throw something out there and say along with that curve of increased glyphosate use, We've also seen spikes in other things. So food allergies, gluten sensitivities, autism, and so on and so on. And as controversial as those things might be, when you plot them all on a graph, they match up perfectly. So I'm going to leave it at that. But I want to come back to this testing situation now. 
you guys started testing in 2014, 2015. How many people have you tested so far and what have the results been? What is the sort of reaction and the feedback been from the people that have been tested? Sure. I mean, specifically for glyphosate, I would say probably about 15,000 people globally, um, but many more also for other herbicides and pesticides. Um, so specifically for glyphosate, at the beginning, <laughs> the reaction when, when you test yourself and find out that there is a, a toxic chemical in your body is, is is a uh, is a difficult situation because you don't really know what to do next. Mm-hmm. Um, but just uh, just from the initial testing, we were finding roughly ninety three percent of the of the population in the U.S. Uh, and this is an estimate because it's not statistically significant yet, uh, or at least it wasn't at that stage. Um, was uh, ha- had some level of glyphosate in in their urine. So, um, wow. that, and so, so that, this- that, that is. No, carry on. Sorry. No, I, I just wanted to say, I mean, 93% is pretty shocking. And the thing, the reason why I'm interjecting is I've heard from medical professionals that have sort of scoffed us all off and said, well, glyphosate doesn't accumulate in your body, right? So they say, well, it's water soluble and it's safe. So therefore we can spray it on the field and we're just going to pee it all out and you're fine. And what I'm hearing from Absolutely. you is that that's not really the case, that we are actually accumulating this into our body stores. Well, yeah, and this is something we really never had any um, any proof of, and even the Euro- early urine testing that we did didn't uh, prove that the levels of glyphosate in the body uh, are anything but water soluble and being um, got rid of from the body. So um, that's actually why we've been looking over the past three years for ideas surrounding how exactly you can show where glyphosate and other pesticides um, uh, are in the body and our long-term exposure. So urine testing and blood testing only show your short-term exposure, meaning what you have been exposed to, from example, for from your last meal or from the fields you walked through last week. Um, that kind of short-term exposure. So what, like However, three, three to ten days kind of thing? or Yeah, so we're looking at blood three to five days and urine up to a maximum of just over two weeks. Huh. Um, but mainly mainly in the last week, I would say, is exposure in urine as well. So it's not really telling us much. It's telling us what, we've, what we're exposed to in the short term and it's, it's telling us what, is, uh, you know, what we're excreting from our body. Obviously, if we're excreting something totally from our body, it's not causing much damage. Right. So um, we never believed these um, claims, to tell you the truth, um, partly because they were only they were not, none of them were third-party verified. Most of them were produced by the chemical industry. So uh, I, I'm, as, as a journalist, I realize not to trust <laughs> them too much of what they claim. Shocker. Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, so I would say... What are the biggest breakthrough we've made actually with testing is is um, working with a laboratory in France called Kudzu Science, um, who are using uh, a couple of methods. Um, they've altered methods which were created by the French and Luxembourg government for hair testing. Now, of course, hair testing has been used for forensic science and also for heavy metal detection mm-hmm. for a long period of time. 
However, for pesticides, it's been much more difficult. One, pesticide molecules are often more difficult to, to, to um, analyze in here. Uh, but two, um, you, you would, in the past, needed a lot of hair to analyze correctly um, what levels in your body. However, these latest methods have, have given us a whole new picture because uh, one, you only need a very small amount of hair. Um, and two, it gives you your long-term exposure to these chemicals. So what's, in other words, been passed into your blood and then through the hair follicles into your hair and what's been stored in your hair over a, say, three to six month period. Hmm. Um, and that, that changes our knowledge for a few reasons. One is not that hasn't been excreted. Um, so when you're looking at your, the levels of pesticides in your hair, you can't claim that uh, though all, all of those pesticides have been excreted from the body. And two, it usually means that the pesticides um, have connected to a specific protein molecule in the hair, whether it's keratin or um, glycine or, or, or a yeah. number of other protein yeah. molecules that are in the hair structure. So it's it's giving us a whole new picture of actually what we're what is we're, what is we're taking into our body over the long term and specifically for the glyphosate testing that we've done in here uh, we find so far and this is very early on because the method for glyphosate was only validated three months ago um but we're finding levels between 100 and 1000 times more in a hair than we are in urine so that wow. just that just gives you a picture of the reality of the situation wow. regarding pesticides wow. in the human body, which, so, is, which is really, as I said, fascinating. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. I don't know if I would use the word fascinating. Personally, I think uh, frightening is a little bit more um, my speed. But anyway, um, yeah. I, I think there's a couple of things that, that, are, that I want to pull out there for our listeners and things that I question now. One you know, there have been, um, uh, there are other researchers, um, Stephanie Seneff, Anthony Samsell, particularly, um, no matter what you think of those people or whatever, that's beside the point. Um, Anthony Samsell has, I've spoken with him, he's been finding that glyphosate has been accumulating in some of the deepest tissues in our body. So he's actually done samples, um, you know, quasi autopsies, if you will, on bones, on teeth, and all sorts of stuff. And so we are actually finding that this glyphosate is accumulating in our body. And that's kind of what you guys are finding with the hair testing. Now, the other thing that I want to pull out is if it's coupling with proteins in the hair, what's to say that it's not coupling with proteins in our blood and in our tissues and now causing who knows what kind of problems, right? Uh, whether it's hormonal problems, <laughs> metabolic signaling problems, cancer, who knows, right? Um, yep. So I just want to pull that up. I don't know if you have any comments on that. No, I mean, the, my, my comments are that we, we are lacking in, in science, in reality, mm -hmm. in this whole subject. Um, meaning that we're lacking, uh, lacking peer-reviewed science um, from independent sources. And this has always been a problem, whether it's yep. uh, from, from our work with the Detox Project or, you, or before that um, as a journalist or for, for both the journalists and the, and, and the public in general. Mm -hmm. We don't have uh, large databases of independent science on pesticide safety. No, so, well, and, and this, 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 is, this, this is interesting for me. And the reason why I say that is, um, you, you know, when people hear that, right, there's those of us will say, well, then we need more testing and surely it can't be safe if it kills insects and weeds and everything else. But then you get the other people who turn around and say, 
oh, well, there's no hard proof to prove that it's dangerous, so it must just be fine. And I don't know how comfortable Absolutely. I am with that, but you get the crowd and it's just like, really? Like, you're just going to blindly accept that this is okay and that government has our best interests at heart here? Like, I don't know. I just can't get into the mindset, but that's kind of the two parties that are out there. Well, I think, I think this has gone on through, through the last um, century in reality, that uh, that argument regarding um, everything, that the, that every, everything is safe until proven otherwise, is completely the wrong way around. Totally. Um, in, 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 reality, in, in reality, one, we shouldn't be relying on, on, on the people who produce the, the chemicals, which we are at the moment, um, to create the safety studies. That makes no sense to well, anyone. Well, that's tobacco science, right? It's tobacco science. It's tobacco science. It's tobacco yeah. science, and it's gone on, it's gone on since, the, uh, since adding fluoride to water, uh, since DDT, since PCBs, since tobacco, since asbestos. Uh, yeah. In reality, it's only when independent, comprehensive independent science comes out that, that anything changes. And so the problem has been always that even when we have comprehensive independent science, which we don't on glyphosate yet, even though there are lots of pointers from small independent studies, mm-hmm. um, that there is a major problem, we haven't got comprehensive science and we need it. Um, but the, the, the big issue here is that, okay, um, we get, we'll get comprehensive science and I'm sure that glyphosate, uh, will be phased out, um, over the next 10 years. Um, but, but that's not the issue here. The issue is that we are in an, a, a currently a long-term cycle of product replacement and it's, it's a constant chemical, chemical replacement um, and it takes another 20 years before we prove that's harmful. And then, uh, we, we don't have the time to constantly damage one, our, our genetics, two, um, for example, things like our sperm count, um, the, the multi-generational effects of these chemicals that, for example, like asbestos and DDT, uh, are only just starting to be felt now. So right. there's, there's, there's no logic to the idea that, that we should be, uh, one, relying on industry studies, and two, saying, okay, this chemical is safe until we, until we prove it otherwise with independent science. Mm. Partly because independent science is not funded correctly. Uh, so it takes a long, long time for it to react um, to new chemicals being brought into the market. Well, uh, yeah. So somehow we need we need to break the cycle. I think that's the that's the message that I wanted mm-hmm. to get across is that we really do need to break this constant cycle. Yeah, and you know, without derailing us too far here, um, I 100% agree with you, and I think you know we experienced that um, across multiple industries. You know, the pharmaceutical industry is well known for this. The renewable energy industry, um, sorry, the, the oil and gas industry, I should say, you know, with the way that they position themselves around renewables. Um, you know, the chemical industry here we're seeing as well, you know, the bottom line is that when we talk about things not being correctly funded, what we're actually saying is a lot of the quote unquote science um, that's being done is actually being funded by industry, but it's being, but it's being passed off as independent science, right? And there's a massive conflict of interest there, you know, um, clearly. But, but unfortunately, people don't, they don't see that, you know, and, and we, that, that's not what's... And of course, if anything does come up as being alarming, let's say, 
you know, I mean, with glyphosate especially, I mean, the first studies that they were doing in Scotland, um, they, the, 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 one of the first people to do it was a Scottish professor. And he found that when he fed, when he fed GMO potatoes to, um, to rats or mice, they developed GI cancers and all sorts of tumors and stuff. And he just got fired and they never published the data, you know. So one wonders how much of the science uh, is actually buried, you know, especially the science that doesn't sort of fall in favor with what the industry wants to see. Absolutely. No, absolutely. It's totally true. And uh, I, I think specifically with, with the idea that it has to be even passed off as independent science is not even the case because... Actually, what happens is that the, all of the regulatory authorities around the world rely on the companies to produce the studies. And wow. even if they're produced with, with their name on, uh, it doesn't matter to, to them, meaning that there's no difference between something that would be published, for example, with Monsanto Bayer's name on or Dow Chemicals name on as a safety study, uh, because the regulators have never done safety studies themselves. Um, That's crazy. So they have all, they, they have, I know, I mean, they've always relied on industry studies to perform safety checks on anything. And it's only when there's, there's a massive alarm amongst the scientific community and the independent scientific community and the public together that they ever do anything about it. And even then, in reality, they don't fund the studies. Um, independent, for example, universities, of which there are a few left, or independent institutions are the ones who have to fund the studies to 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 make a discovery regarding uh, the non-safety of a product or right. a product. So, well, it comes our, back our, to what, what, our government regulatory is, is just system is just uh, and, rubbish. And, and it, totally, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it comes back to what you were saying before, you know. And and perhaps we can speak about this um, in in a certain way. Anyway, you know. We, we, you spoke earlier about how things are safe until proven toxic, right? In, in a nutshell, yeah. you find, you know, I've heard this, but I think, you know, you're a good person to talk to about this. What do you think the differences are um, between how we approach this uh, in the US and North America versus EU? Because as far as I can see, the EU seems to be a little bit more progressive and sort of takes the whole safety thing a little bit more seriously. Whereas in the US and Canada, I mean, we just double down, right? It's just, you, you know, Absolutely. just keep on going at all costs. So are, what are the differences there and how we approach this from country to country or from region to region? So Europe, Europe uh, let's say a decade or so ago was not so good, meaning they, they've become better and better with using the precautionary principle. Um, and they've, they've kind of worked very hard on this project called REACH at the European level, uh, which is to use a precautionary principle regarding new chemicals and also to start regulating chemicals, for example, neonics and glyphosate much more mm -hmm. than they ever were outside the European Union. Um, however, having said that, um, the EU is the main exporter of uh, toxic chemicals in the world. Oh wow! So okay. it <laughs> from 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 that point of view, they have a good safety. They, they at least it's, it's not perfect, and and it still needs a lot of development. But it's the best out there currently is the EU regulation on toxic chemicals for use in the European Union. However, obviously that's a very big double standard when they sell it to the rest of the world, sell all of these chemicals to the rest of the world. But the, the US is doing the same, right? Uh, With like DD the US is stuff. doing the same. Yeah. 
Absolutely, yeah. The US is doing the same, but not on such a big scale as regarding okay. export. A lot of the, lot, lot of the um, imports uh, into the US of these chemicals are actually coming from China to the US. Mm. Uh, for example, glyphosate is, is um, uh, 60% of, of um, exported, uh, of imported into the US is from China. Um, so, I mean, that's the problem in the US, specifically in Canada, is that they haven't regulated use in Canada and the US. So citizens and people in, in uh, across North America and also parts of South America, um, there's really poor regulation as to what can be used, how much can be used, where it can be used um, regarding toxic chemicals, specifically pesticides and glyphosate. So uh, there are very, very poor regulations purely because there's more there's no use of the precautionary principle uh, and there's a huge amount of political support for the chemical companies more than, oh, more than there is in the EU. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, for yeah, example, yeah. just to, to, to give a good example of that regarding lobbying, uh, Monsanto, uh, now Bayer, have been banned from lobbying in the European Parliament. Um, <laughs> how, how, however, uh, Dow, um, Dow and uh, Monsanto, Bayer, and DuPont are three of the main lobby lobbyists in Washington. So that just, wow. uh, I think, gives you an example of, of how politics has let people down in, in, in the US and Canada as well. Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, same old story, government basically shining the corporate shoe um, and, and, yep. and, you know, just with disregard for our own safety and that of the environment and, and all sorts of other stuff. Now, um, I want to move us forward in our conversation here. Um, you know, because a lot of people have heard, you know, they've heard me speak extensively about glyphosates. They've been, you know, you guys are getting a lot of traffic on your website these days, a lot of shares with the post. Um, you know, we spoke before we got on this, uh, there were a few key things with regards to glyphosate and chemicals. You know, I'm really, really glad that you guys have come up with the hair tests. Um, you know, you you have wa- you have tests for water now as well for water and food and we'll perhaps touch on that uh, in a little bit but let's talk about um things you know one of the things we wanted to talk about was desiccation because i think for a lot of people they sort of go well i'm eating organic um i'm doing all the right things like surely my exposure can't be that bad and you know mm-hmm. if i'm eating organic well then um you know, they're not getting sprayed, so I should be fine. But I know from testing people, um, you know, personally and in my practice, I know from testing people that I've yet to find anyone with non-detectable levels of glyphosate. So one of the problem areas is obviously desiccation. And then the other problem area is this idea of sort of, um, I don't want to say cross-contamination. I think you say it better than I do, but we can, you know, sub- supply chain management. Maybe we can talk about those two things uh, for folks that may never have heard of this before. Sure. So desiccation, which is um, pre-harvest spraying of glyphosate, is actually not an on-bottle use, meaning it shouldn't be, shouldn't be used. Glyphosate should not be used as a pre-harvest spray. And farmers use it to dry out the crop to such a degree just before harvest, that they do not have to send the crop then to a drying bin to get it to the correct moisture level before it goes off into the supply chain. Um, so pre, pre-harvest spraying has not been going on for a long period of time. Um, you're talking probably the early 2000s when it, when it started as a, as a practice amongst farmers. Um, and 
glyphosate for uh, as one of the main pesticides is uh, very very um, for example if you spray glyphosate early on in the season it's unlikely to get into the final food product or the mm-hmm. final crop uh, because of environmental reasons and because obviously it's going to be washed off into the soil it's water soluble yeah yeah yeah, it is. It is water soluble um, to a degree, and so it would it wouldn't be found in the final harvest. So, um, this pre-harvest spray practice desiccation means that you really will start to find uh, glyphosate in the final food products, and this is why um, the brands, many brands, uh, for example, Mega Food, Ben and Jerry's. Um, Nature's Harvest have all started to petition the EPA to mm. stop that practice because the brands are the ones that are being damaged in the public eye because they're fi- you know people are finding um, glyphosate in, in in specific brands and going to the press or going to the courts as well. Um, so it's it's an issue that's effect- affecting the brands the most, and it is the desiccation. To, in my opinion, is ninety percent of the reason that uh, glyphosate is getting into the human body at such wow. rates wow. of, of non-agricultural people, meaning people who are just getting exposed through eating through food. So I just want to make sure that I got this right because, and especially for our listeners, the process of desiccation, um, well, let's back up a step. If I was to grow a food that had to be dried before I sent it off for processing, so these would be things like beans and legumes, these would be my spices and so on. Essentially, what we're talking about is uh, traditionally we would take those wet and let's say we would dry them out in a warehouse or with a dryer or whatever. I'm just being totally lay here. Um, and then yep. from there, we would package them and sell them. But what you're saying is we're actually now, quote unquote, drying these in the field by way of simply killing them in the field with chemicals. And this is done about three to four days before they're actually processed, right? So there's not enough time yep. for the chemicals to wash off and the glyphosate to wash off. And that's now causing higher levels in food. Now, um, wh- one thing I do want to ask you is, is this, you know, tradition, well, not traditionally, I mean, like straight up, the, the foods that have been engineered to withstand Roundup um, we understand that, right? So the only thing that's going to be left in that farmer's field is the Roundup Ready soy or canola or whatever it is. But we're now talking about taking Roundup that was used for GM crops specifically, and we're now applying it to non-genetically modified crops. Is that is is that a fair thing to say? Or yeah, absolutely. So so uh, Roundup um, uh, Roundup glyphosate is is used. Um, specifically in conventional non-GMO crops to dry them out. So you're talking about oat, oats, wheat uh, as two of the main crops that use uh, desiccation, but also potatoes, sunflowers, all of the pulses. Oh, wow. Um, and and uh, actually a, a range of other things that you wouldn't expect, as you said, for example, spices, cinnamon, for example. So, and they, they sometimes even spray after harvest just again to, because it's good desiccant and it pulls the moisture out of those spices. Um, so, so okay. So, that, I mean, words, go, sorry, carry on, finish, finish, and then I, I'll add. No, so, so I was going to, I mean, obviously with GMO crops, because you spray so regularly and so much on them, 
you will get residues which are high and we all understand that for example with soy right. um but the, i think what what lots of people don't understand is that glyphosate contamination is uh is also a major problem in conventional crops and also uh, as as you you alluded to in organic um in some parts of the organic supply chain as well and so we'll get onto the supply chain i just want to add one thing here um that just really occurred to me right now and that's kind of blown my mind is you know there's a label that's out there called non-gmo project and i love what they do i think it's fantastic but what i'm hearing and what i'm understanding is that non-gmo project is simply saying that a product is not genetically modified but with this increased use or pro or um, increased practice of desiccation now Although those products might not be genetically modified, we could expect, or in many cases, we could expect that there are still levels of glyphosate in there, which is, to me, very exactly. troubling. Yeah, that's that's very troubling. It, um, it, 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 it is a, it's a major issue, and I, I always praise the non-GMO project yeah. because it really shone a light on the whole issue um, more than probably any other group uh, has done so so that's not to take away from from, from what they've been yeah. doing because it's absolutely yeah. fabulous it's just that the absolute I, I i agree i think people don't understand that non-gmo does not mean glyphosate residue free yeah it, and so to and, any and, degree yeah and that's really where your you know detox project certification comes in so you know if i was to see now on a label that something is non-gmo verified and then it's also glyphosate residue free that can give me some kind, a lot more reassurance, in fact, that, you know, considering that 65% of agricultural chemicals used are Roundup, I could be pretty certain mm -hmm. then that it's going to have a much, much lower level of pesticide and herbicide residue um, because of that, that certification that you guys have. So hopefully yeah, that yeah, becomes more true. widespread. I mean <laughs> Uh, no, hopefully. And uh, the good thing is a lot of, the, um, for example, let's say bigger brands have started to pick up on this um, and have started to, to, to show much more interest. And mainly since these court cases, these recent court cases regarding, regarding Roundup and the issues regarding Roundup um, and, and both litigation for health reasons with people um, getting non-Hodgkin's lymphoma yeah. and also uh, court cases against specific brands for finding glyphosate in, say, natural brands as well. Right. And so for those of you listening out there, um, you know, again, I just, I, I defer you back to um, my blog. There's a lot of articles on there on this. There are food lists on there. I've reposted a lot of stuff from Sustainable Pulse, which is um, actually Henry's uh, and Detox Project, uh, their media publication. So um, I don't want to take up much more time talking about that. Go and check out some of the other podcasts that I've done. Go and check out the blog. There's a ton of information there. Um, now, let's talk about something else that, you know, we spoke about a, a couple of, a few months ago now. We first started talking about it. This whole idea of cross-contamination between organics and non-organic, and, and I'm just going to throw the cat among the pigeons here. Um, what we've spoken about is, you know, A, you guys have done more testing than anyone else on the planet in this regard. And something that we spoke about, I'll let you elaborate, is the fact that most pea protein, so this is just one example, most pea proteins that were organic, that were tested, had glyphosate levels that were above acceptable limits, right? So how do we explain glyphosate getting into organic products? 
Uh, this is a, a really big and quite controversial question. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> it's okay. We like controversy now, on the show. It's good. <laughs> that's, that's good. Um, so uh, let me start by saying that the, this is not an organic farming issue uh, pretty much at all. You yeah. do get spray drift occasionally, and it's not the farmers themselves who are causing this problem. What is happening is that um, specifically in the U.S., when you send off a crop into the supply chain, uh, there is no testing for herbicides and pesticides, and the middlemen are very aware of this. So there is a small amount of fraudulent organic, meaning that they swap out um, conventional crops with organic in the supply chain, and that ends up in organic products. And that is why you're seeing high levels of glyphosate. With spray drift, you see, usually see low levels, but with, right. with uh, high, high levels in some organic, organic products is because of swapping out. Um, so this is, this is a major issue um, because obviously when people buy organic, they trust that it's, it's pest completely not just glyphosate, but pesticide-free. Um, and that's because of the farming practice. So we have suggested to many people that they, they start a, similar to the European Union, testing within the supply chain for um, pesticides. Uh, however, no one's listened yet. And in the US organic supply chain, it's really quite tragic that there is no, on. Well, I say no, hardly any um, pesticide testing going on, uh, especially it, it's not regulated within the orga- organic industry. Obviously, some brands do themselves mm. test um, the better brands, let's say, um, but it's not a regulated practice. So, so I, I, I think if we, as as people who know that organic food is better for us, purely because of the lack of chemicals, uh, don't start to press both the brands and the, and the authorities that look after organic. Um, for example, the Organic Trade Association and others, um, then really we will never be completely clear regarding what type of organic product we're eating when we, when we go and look for that label. So right. uh, that's really the reason we set up the glyphosate residue free certification was to, to put pressure on to make sure that they start to test within the organic supply chain. And, and I would imagine now, um, you know, spoiler alert, uh, but there are tests and you guys can check out the show notes on this. You can go to my website. I have these tests up there uh, working with detox project on this. Um, those hair tests are now publicly available for your body, but also uh, there are now tests the way you at home can test your own food and water. And what I'm seeing from this is there's going to be a massive amount of pressure put on industry and regulators if people start all testing their food and water and saying, hey, I'm buying organic food. This is what the level is. What the hell, right? But simply put, I mean, s- simply put here, I just want to circle back to something. Simply put, what what I'm hearing from you is you know, the farming side of things is not as much of an issue. Yes, there's some drift and whatnot. But are we talking about cross-contamination in the in the supply chain? Like, let's just say I've got a whole warehouse full of chickpeas, right? And I've got organic chickpeas coming in and I've got conventional and genetically modified stuff and whatever. And what's coming out the other end is all getting mixed up. Is, is that correct or am I getting it wrong? 
Uh, yeah, it's intentional intentional fraud, in other words, the, the, because a commodity is cheaper when it's conventional than organic. If I mix organic with conventional and sell it as organic, I'm making more money. Right. And so if that's not, if, that, if the, the pesticide testing is one way of stopping that, Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously you're going to find levels and you're going to think, oh, there's something going on in the in, in the system. Let's check it out. But because there's none of that done, uh, you do get intentional swapping out uh, or, or as you say, I suppose cross-contamination is is, is another word Polite, for swapping out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, um, so, so to what degree is yeah. this really going on? I mean, what have you guys tested so far? What have you sort of found out there? I mean, is this, is this widespread or is it just an isolated few cases? No, it's, it's not, it's not widespread, but you're, you're looking, I, I, I couldn't, um, couldn't say how how big a problem it is without having statistically massive right. numbers right. because obviously you'd have to test hundreds of thousands of samples to be mm-hmm. able to really claim something. Uh, but it's uh, more of a problem than just a few cases. Let's just put okay. it that way. Okay. Okay. And some of the foods that you guys have tested, I mean, we spoke about one, um, I, I sort of put that out there was the pea protein um, or organic pre organic pea protein that that is used in a lot of the sort of plant-based protein powders but anything else that you guys have looked at that uh, people should know about yeah i'd say organic lentils is a is another issue um organic oats in some some respects although lots of there are lots of good companies out there in the organic oats world who do some excellent supply chain testing um and yeah, generally, generally leg- legumes and, and, and maybe uh, in some cases wheat as well is, is an issue. Um, organic, some organic yeah. wheat that we've tested has been has been quite high in glyphosate levels. So, so I mean, that's, um, that's not not yeah. good news. That's not that's not good news, especially for those people who are um, really gravitating more towards a plant based or vegan diet. Uh, obviously, this is um, this is quite concerning. So, but the good news is it is, it um, is especially. Especially when you have, especially when, you know, if you're, for example, tofu based uh, mm-hmm. as one of your main proteins and you're looking at, uh, you, you see GMO soya and you avoid that and then you have non-GMO soya and you, and then you avoid that because there might be glyphosate on it and then you have to go to organic and uh, that might have it on as well. So it's, it's a bizarre, it's, a, it's really a bizarre system that needs changing. Yeah, seriously. Well, I mean, you know, as much as we can sit and casually talk about it, we are actually talking about lives at stake here. We're talking about um, increased risks of cancer and all sorts of other stuff. And, you know, again, for those of you listening, go back to the blog, uh, go and look at Facebook posts that I've done, go on to some of Henry's media, which we'll share at the end. And there's extensive literature on uh, court cases that have been won now, um, you know, by plaintiffs who have actually sued Monsanto uh, over damage uh, by glyphosate. But what solutions, um, I just, again, just to sort of wrap us up here today, um, you know, you guys are doing the hair testing, um, you're doing the food testing. I'm going to put some links in the show notes and go back to the website. You'll see everything there. But um, what solutions, you know, are there any other solutions that you guys are really working on? I know you're doing some work with governments uh, and, and so on. So anything else you want to share with us on that front? Yeah, sure. sure. So um, we're looking at products, for example, that can um, uh, change actually um, how glyphosate 
remains in the body, meaning that it can actually remove glyphosate from the body, which I think is a very interesting solution for people that are worried of having high levels of, of uh, glyphosate in their bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, we've already certified um, Purium's Biomedic as a gold standard um, gold standard detox product for glyphosate specifically. So we we actually third party certify that that removes glyphosate from the body. Um, and we're looking to certify more products uh, for for people to know that they can can get rid of or uh, at least um, reduce the levels of um, toxic chemicals in their body because I think it's very important for people to be able to do that, especially in the modern world where we're we're surrounded by these chemicals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's one one major solution. And as I said, the other solutions that we're working on are majorly related to. Um, agricultural solutions um, right. the, the, I, that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, and, and you guys, I know, have been working with the Green Party in the EU, or at least you've been, you know, things are moving over there. So can you give us a little bit of insight? I know there's been, um, you know, stuff coming out of Germany, stuff coming out of France now with regards to chemicals and pesticides. Are, are they moving towards banning glyphosate or what? where, where are things at over there? Sure. So France has actually a few weeks ago launched a uh, a government website for the phasing out of glyphosate before 2020. Um, They're the first country to do so, which would be a a total phase out in in agriculture uh, happening in 2020. Um, Wow. Wow. And so so that's a big, big move, especially as France has a lot of power in the European Union. Um, Germany is politically divided on this issue. It actually almost brought the brought the German government down. Um, they almost <laughs> didn't form a gov- government just purely because of the glyphosate issue. Oh wow! Um, so they are currently um, the environment minister uh, is also talking about a phase out for a bit later before 2022, but they haven't put a final date on that phase out. Um, still in negotiations. Um, and other EU countries are now are now following both France and Germany in in working on legally legally binding phases out of of the use of the chemical. So, and this is even before before the relicensing of glyphosate, which is set to happen. Uh, the, the, the whole debate regarding that is set to happen in 2023. Wow. Now. Uh, also in Europe, uh, in Italy, started the gly- Global Glyphosate Study, which is looking to um, find some uh, comprehensive science on uh, and, and, and to do some comprehensive science on this whole issue, which hasn't been done before. So that's based in the EU, but also involving, for example, the Mount Sinai School of Medicine and George Washington University. Mm. Um, so we, so hopefully, we'll have a clear picture on on, on the science because of what's happening by. Uh, and what's been started by the Ramazzini Institute in Italy. Um, But again, that will take take a few years. You're looking in 2022. So there's some big big moves happening on on the glyphosate issue and also on other pesticides such as neonics in in Europe. And also amazingly, and this may be one of the biggest um, um, drivers of change, is that uh, China has just announced that they are setting up um, maximum residue levels for a number of pesticides, including glyphosate, which would challenge a huge number of imports into China, which is an extremely important market for, for example, the US soybean market, 
the US wheat market. Um, and they're going to set low level, low maximum residue limits for imports, which, which would really, I mean, changing trade is one of the most important things. And, and China's move, which is set to happen next year, uh, will put massive pressure to, for example, to stop desiccation in, in, in crops because the uh, U.S. soybean market and the U.S. Soybean Association is one of the most powerful um, uh, agricultural associations in the world. And, and, and having the Chinese market cut off, for whatever reason, because it may well be political that they're doing this at the moment, could be, uh, because yeah. of the trade war. Yeah. Um, but it, but it will it will have a major major effect on global trade if they if they do introduce that as expected next year. So I find that interesting, and I I do just want to um you know I know we're wrapping up, but uh, you know when when I mean the sixty three countries last time I checked that have GMO labeling, and you know as soon as they require GMO labeling, you know obviously once you put a label on there, there's a huge majority of people are going to not want to eat it for that simple fact. So what happened then was, you know, if we can't export as much, I always said, well, who's going to eat it, right? Because it's not like you get, you know, just stop growing the stuff. You're obviously still going to keep growing Mm -hmm. it. And that's why I feel that there's been um, such pushback with regards to labeling of GMOs in North America. They will not label GMOs because there's no one else to sell these products to. So as much as I love hearing what you're saying about China, my, my deeper concern on the flip side is, is that just going to make everyone double down here and say, well, now we're just got to throw a complete caution to the wind and eat up everyone because uh, there's no one else to sell it. <laughs> um, so that, anyway, that, that's just how my brain works. Um, but hopefully it'll go the other way. Yeah, there's some. There, I think there's some good logic in what you just said, um, specifically with GMOs. Uh, however, obviously with GMOs, uh, most GMOs are sold for animal feed, so uh, labeling labeling doesn't cause a massive shift in the market regarding the growth of GMOs. Um, but yeah, for for things like this regarding glyphosate residues, uh, there there usually is a market, and sadly, that market in the US and Canada is the home market because there's no control. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, on that note, Henry, um, thank you so much for uh, taking the time out um, to join me today. It's been a really, really great discussion. Um, you know, I think we got into a lot of things, and I think that you know, for a lot of folks out there listening to this. You probably um, learned a few things today that you did not know about. So uh, you might be a little bit upset about certain things. Um, hopefully, Henry's also done a great job of making us see that there is some light at the end of the tunnel, that things are starting to shift, that things are starting to change. It's really just coming down to the wire in terms of how fast we can change these things. So, um, Henry, any final words from your side? Anything you would like to share with us? Um, any resources or websites or anything else that you want to turn our listeners onto? Sure. I, I would encourage people to sign up to our um, email list on both our media, which is sustainablepulse.com, and also on the Detox Project, which is detoxproject.org. And uh, we'll try and keep uh, keep you informed of all the, all the latest things going on in the, in the pesticide and GMO world. Awesome. And yeah, you guys have a huge following, um, a huge network around you. And I got to say, I share a lot of your stuff there. I say almost all. Um, and I find that, 
people are really paying attention. There's a lot of sharing. There's a lot of dialogue going on. So, uh, Henry, keep up the good work. Um, great to know you and to be able to call you my friend and uh, continue um, looking forward to uh, working with you as we move forward and try and help us on this issue. So, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you, Brett. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. And for those of you listening out there, uh, if you have enjoyed today's episode and you feel that this information is important to get out to your friends, your family, your community, uh, please do share this episode, subscribe, review, do whatever you got to do. And uh, just help me to um, you know keep these shows coming and uh, to bring you more awesome guests like Henry. So Henry, thanks again. For those of you listening out there, you have yourself a beautiful day wherever you are. Oh, 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 oh,